You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. When you have a fellow human being in your arms, literally vibrating, sobbing, and you think, wow, you know, we've done something there. We've touched her at such a deep level. That is contact, I suppose, pure human contact. I hope I don't come across as being exploitative in any way, but it was just like, yeah, okay, that's the power of a book. I've done some documentaries of my books for BT Sport. My docos are 90 minutes, and they are slices. There's, there's an element of fast food about it to a degree. When you're doing a book, it's a four-course, a five-course, or a six-course meal. People often ask me, well, why, why do you do sport? Why don't you do politics or whatever? And sport... I think is almost unique in terms of you see the best in human nature, people striving for a goal, selflessness, commitment to a team, and you see the worst. You see the greed, you see the lie, the untruths, you know, cynical manipulation of individuals. Hi, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My guest this time is Michael Calvin. He's a distinguished journalist and author. We're discussing the process of writing a sports book. That's everything from choosing the topic, the right question, how the process evolves, getting access, making sure that your interviewees are on side, they trust you, marketing the book. Then, of course, a lot of the issues that have come from Michael's sports books, and he's written some important titles over the last decade or so. Just to note, this episode was recorded before the recent escalation in the coronavirus situation, so bear that in mind. But if you're stuck at home and you've got nothing to do, then do go to mrrichardclark.com and browse through the back catalogue of sports content strategy. They're all there for you to enjoy. Go to my website as well to sign up to my newsletter or to contact me. On social media, I'm at mrrichardclark. And if you don't know who I am, I'm a sports consultant helping federations, athletes and teams with their social media, digital content strategy, etc, etc. If you need me, you know where I am. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk about writing a sports book, contributing to the font of knowledge in the area of sport with this man. My name is Mike Calvin, a jobbing hack, former chief sports writer of the Daily Telegraph and one or two other papers, now uh, concentrating on books, done 10 in the last uh, eight years. Thanks for speaking to me, Mike. Um, books. That's what I'm interested in, how to write a sports book. Um, so why did you choose this path? It's an obvious route, isn't it, after being such a long-standing journalist? Mm. But some journalists don't do it. So why, why did you choose I, I found, you know, I was very fortunate that I, I started in the profession really early. I did my first Olympics when I was 21. did about, I think, seven World Cups. Um, as a chief sports writer or economist, which is essentially my roles, I had to, one, form supposedly cogent opinions, but do so in, in a, a pretty limited format, which is essentially anywhere between 800 and 1,200 words uh, for a column for a national paper. Now, if you contrast that to a book where I have got 100,000 words, so the platform is is bigger in a newspaper but when you're doing a book it's much more intimate and I, what I always was very attracted to the fact of the nature of books once it's once it's between hard covers there's a there's a sense of almost immortality about it it's there and it will be there and it will be read by your 
kids and their kids and maybe their kids. And that's something I always talk about when I've done co-writes with, with people. I've done four now. did um, Gareth Thomas, which was a very powerful book called Proud, charted his coming out and his suicide, suicidal tendencies. did Joey Barton, who opened up a book called No Nonsense. did uh, Alistair Cook. I've just uh, completed one with Dylan Hartley, the um, guy who was England rugby captain until his leg fell off, basically. So the whole process, I found, was multi-layered, and you had to immerse yourself in it, which is what I found really attractive. You've also written a number of books, been a solo writer, mm. on, on, uh, author on, uh, on a number of books. Um, so concentrating on those, why have you chosen the stories you've chosen for your solo authored book, mm. which has been about the state of the game, which is kind of general. You followed a, one individual club throughout a season, which mm. is Millwall. You've talked about youth football, a few more as well. So Coaching, mm-hmm. management, scouting, yeah. all that, yeah. I, I think with, uh, yeah, it, to give listeners an, an insight, um, when, you, when you commit to doing a book, you have to fully commit, and this is where you know, you're immersed in the subject and it's in your brain all the time, but also you have to sometimes take take a gamble. I'd always wanted to do essentially a Hunter Davis type behind the scenes book. I grew up, my childhood friend was Kenny Jackett, who was manager at Millwall at the time. Now Millwall had always fascinated me as a bit of a, you know, a throwback blue collar club in a, in a football world which was becoming hyper-commercialized and elitist. So I wanted to get underneath the skin of that club. Um, but, you know, as you know, Rich, clubs don't tend to have, offer that type of, you know, complete access that you require. And the process of that was, you know, it was quite strange, really. I was in Las Vegas for my brother's 40th and shared a room with um, uh, Kenny's brother, and he was talking about the experiences of uh, that Ken was having at, at Millwall. So when I got back, I, I just called him out of the blue and said, "Look, here's my idea. I want to do a full season with you from the first day of preseason training to the last game, basically in everything." And he thought about it for no more than fifteen seconds and said, "Okay, I think we should do it." Spoke to the chief exec, then spoke to the owner, and they both had the foresight to see the benefits to the club of actually giving someone like me full access. Now, that's a really brave decision, especially given the the controversy which tends to swirl around that club, but they saw it as a chance to answer the stereotypes associated with the club. And as things turned out, it was a hugely educational process for me, but it helped the club in terms of they still use the book now. It's called Family. Uh, they still use the book as a f- part of their marketing, essentially. The access I had was total, and it was educational because I was actually drawn into the group. And, you, and you know, I became almost an accessory to the squad. So I was in the dressing room all, all the time. Uh, I watched all the matches on the bench, was in coaching meetings when they were releasing players, in board meetings I had a very very you know crash course in, in, in the nature of modern football first day of pre-season training Ken gathered the group and said oh here's Mike he's going to be with us all year blah 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 and 
you know, you've been around professional footballers and they're looking and thinking, well, who the hell's this guy, you know? And Neil Harris, who you know, obviously subsequently became manager, uh, was the senior pro and he sussed me out. He, he was at the end of the session, one road, really nice guy. And so, oh, wow, well, yeah, hi. What, what, you, what you plan on doing, blah, blah, blah. And I'd obviously said the right thing because very quickly in one of one of the first pre-season friendlies we were at a non-league club Dartford little tiny little dressing room and they went through their ritual which is you know the sort of five minutes before we go out everyone's in the huddle and high-fiving and everything else and um, big Irish lad called David Ford the goalkeeper came to me and said what are you going to say to me? I said well what do you mean? Said, what are you going to say to me? I said well I'm going to wish you well. Have a good one. Have a good one, mate. So he went out and they, he didn't, he kept a clean sheet. So he came back in after us. Next time he said, every fucking time you are saying, have a good one. So I was part of the superstitious group then. And it was really quite interesting because they acted very naturally around me. I used to have a sort of a, a vantage uh, place. I just positioned myself just inside the showers. So I could look out and see them. And they didn't really notice me. So there was, and so then you get an idea of the, of the internal dynamics of a team, you know, the quiet one in the corner or the loud one. They then acted completely naturally because I was then drawn in and I had to go through all their rituals. They, they, they insisted on me being part of it. And it was, it was really interesting over the course of the year how, you know, players were saying, oh, you haven't done me yet. And they all wanted to talk about about their lives in a very intimate way, and so I, you know, I, the the educational element was, you know, here were a group of guys who you know didn't have the the massive wealth we associate with Premier League these days. You know, they, they were earning well, but they still had to pay mortgages. They still had to worry about being released, and so you got an idea of the underlying almost institutionalised insecurity of professional sport. Um, and, you know, there were moments where, you know, it got heated. You, know, you had two friends who were you know, fighting and swearing one another in on the training ground. And I put that out. It was in the book, you know, because right at the start, I, I said to Ted, Ken and, and the group, look, this will be warts and all because it has to be authentic. This isn't a PR product. It is an, an authentic look at how you commit to the task, which is getting promotion. Um, and it was it was it was really interesting. You know, you get the tenderness of it. There was a, there was a it, again in the last preseason friendly. It was a, a testimonial for Richie Sadler, who is now a successful uh, writer and therapist in uh, Ireland. Just done a very good book, and. There was a, a lad there who, uh, Danny Sender, who was a full-back at Wickham and places like that, he had a lot, a lot of long-term injury issues and he was coming, making his comeback. And uh, towards the end of the first half, went up for a ball, landed awkwardly and basically blew up his Achilles. And that was him done pretty much as a player. And when we came back in the dressing room at half-time, he was, he, he was lying on the, the physio's couch waiting for the ambulance in a lot of pain. And I watched Neil Harris, who, and he walked over to him 
didn't say a word and just kissed him very tenderly on his forehead and I thought wow you know that people you know people can do seminars on teamship and everything else that was a really I thought a very sort of revealing gesture of humanity um, and then you know they all got on with the game um, so, so that sort of thing was was, was interesting. When because uh, <laughs> when when I when I'd done the book, because I, I, sh- I said, look, you know, I do, and I do, I still do. I work transparently. I, you know, I I, I you know, don't want to I don't want to try and appear pious, but throughout my career, I I think I've lasted because people trust me, and I work openly with them. So, so I showed Ken the manuscript, and he said, Oh Jesus! He said, Look, you know, if I don't own this. I'm not sure I would have said yes, uh, because he said it's so revealing of us. And what it was that there was, it was there were some pretty, you know, tough moments and revealing moments. Uh, but he said, look, you know, I, I'm a man of my word, and, and we showed it to a group of senior players. Now, again, this is where it was educational. I, I christened them in the book the Governors, and it is a trait of successful teams where. There are, there's a group of five to six very senior pros who set the standards both personally and professionally for the group. So if they see a young player coming in and getting out of hand, they sort it. It doesn't go anywhere near the manager. Those guys saw it. And, you know, they, again, they recognized themselves and they understood the authenticity. It was, I only changed one thing. There's a player, there's a winger called Danny Schofield, Again, a really, really um, very thoughtful guy. And I used to do a lot of my work in, in the canteen after training. And we were chatting one day and he basically came up with the story of he was essentially playing for his younger brother who, in essence, died through a cop death incident when he was about 21. And uh, Danny sought me out and said, look, Mike, can you take that out? Because he was very, very, you know, obviously emotional about it. Uh, he said, look, everything you know, everything I've said is in there. You've got the tone of it right. But if my mum reads it, it'll kill her. So there wasn't an issue. I said, yeah, okay, fine, that's out. And again, that, I think, went round the dressing room, that I was prepared to give due respect to individuals. Um... And it wasn't a confrontational. You, you, you'll, you'll know, Rich, that but the, the modern media club relationship is confrontational, and there is a lack of mutual trust and respect. And, and so, I suppose by being around all the time, they um, they saw that you know a relationship is is possible. So the interesting thing about it was that I struggled to get a deal on it. So I self-published for the first edition, uh, and it, you know, people were really kind about it, and, and yeah, it went it went really well, uh, and I sold about twenty odd thousand um, off the bat, and then sold it to another, sold it to a publisher for a second edition, and then subsequently um, there's been another sort of series 
been done from it. Again, this is what I said right at the start, you've got to have faith in yourself. You know, there's an awful lot of work went into that. I mean, was that a year's work? Was that a season's yeah. work? Yeah, it was. Were you yeah. doing anything else to earn money? Uh, yeah, I was, a column, I was a columnist on The Mirror. Right, okay. Sunday Mirror, yeah. Um, but it's still the vast majority of your work, well, yeah, time, sure. Yeah, 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 I took a punt. And you've got no... We couldn't even get a deal, so you're not even sure you're going to get a yeah. deal. You might lose money if you're self-publishing, yeah. right? But you, but you have to... You have to have that faith in yourself, and you know, I, without being um, arrogant, uh, I had faith in myself, and I knew that this would complement my experience and my skills, at such as they are. You know, because as I say, I've been pretty lucky that you know, within newspapers, yeah, you know, I was uh, supposed to be at the top of the profession quite early as, as a chief sports writer. And essentially there, I had the world, I could do whatever I wanted, go wherever I wanted. I used to, I'm probably on the road for about six months a year. Um, I had the scope to even do, you know, frankly, daft stuff like, you know, I took a year out of the Telegraph to throw around the world in the race uh, because I wanted to experience it as a competitor, uh, your race. So um, the book, though, the book felt right. And again, you just got to back yourself. And I think that's sometimes... You know the the most daunting element of it. Um, now, as it happens, it was a perfect story because Millwall went up at Wembley, so I'm in the dressing room at Wembley, and one of my favourite players, Tony Craig, who's still playing actually at Bristol Rovers, he blew his leg out, uh, and again there was almost a similar scene to the Danny Sender scene at halftime at Wembley. He was in there, and the boys were just kind of just touching him very gently on the leg, and it was almost one of these sort of. It wasn't sympathy, but there was empathy, and it was almost sort of a form of emotional osmosis, and you, you just got a sense of how the team worked, and it was brilliant because you know they went up, they got the trophy, and they they, they got Tony up to the to the royal box to get his medal, and. It gets down. They help him down the stairs, and the next thing I know, he's 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 dancing in an air boot on the, on the pitch with, with his with his his crutches sort of waving. Uh, it was brilliant, and and so that day it it, it was the culmination of you know a, it was a beautiful friendship, I suppose, and 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 also it taught me to ignore stereotypes of my own industry. The war, certainly those stereotypes which are promoted by my own industry, because Millwall as a football club, I thought was an amazing institution. You know, rough and ready, yep. Harsh edges, yep. But it's a reflection of the community that it represents, and uh, I loved it. I mean, that's not too many years ago. Mm. Um, it was 10, 19 years ago. Yeah. Nineteen years ago. Okay. The media world has changed a lot in that period of time. Absolutely. Now, yeah. I mean, just throw this to you, but now I'd sense well. Someone at a club, if they were if they were asked that question about, we're going to give all this access to somebody to create a book. Well, no, let's 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 follow what Man City, Dortmund, and Leeds, and all these clubs have done. Let, the All Blacks, let's monetize all it. Let's right, monetize but, but, but let's make a let's make an Amazon series, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the sort of the battle between the written word and video, which yeah. videos won <laughs> or seeming to win yeah, at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, and perhaps what you've got there is one of the last. Occasions that I've known about where someone's taken that approach and gone deep yeah. um, for the written word as opposed to the yeah. video word because what you've described is some moments now that I that I've seen the, that kind of thing on video. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it's seen as more important now. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, I think and there's only so much access to go around in, in, in a club's mind. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I've spoken to a couple of Premier League clubs about doing one, and that they do have. You know, Amazon paid ten million pounds for the City one. So, in essence, access now is something. It's just another product to be commercialised. Now, my view, uh, you know, those those documentaries. I thought the Manchester City one was quite one-dimensional. Uh, I thought the Sunderland one was great, but it was great. <laughs> Not for the football club, probably. Um, but you say that, they're actually they're citing interest from overseas exactly. investors yeah. on the back of it, even yeah. though it was a little bit car crash TV, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But you, I, you know, that's that's where the, the, Millwall, the Millwall book went mad. You know, it sold in big numbers, thankfully. You know, I still I get invites to go and, and talk about them in you know, Scandinavia, States, Australia. The book is a book is a global commodity, and I think the, the, the thing about a book as compared to a TV show. And I've done I've done some documentaries of my books for BT Sport, uh, um, State of Play, and also No Hunger in Paradise, which is the the book I did about you know, kids in football. They are. Yeah, my, my my docos are ninety minutes, and they are slices. And there's there's an element of fast food about it to a degree. When you're doing a book, it's a four course, or a five course, or a six course meal, and it and it's something that I think also that people people were really kind about that book, and they have been kind about all my books because it drops the veil, and there's something more of more substance. Again, we go back to the hard covers and the immortality bit it's interesting that, that those and I've still kept in touch with most of those Millwall players and they've you know fewer coaching now some are out of the game um, they are still they will always be in people's minds you know the 29 year old guy who's got a promotion that season so there, there, you know there's a it's a moment you know, an extended moment in time, which I think books are very um, evocative, probably more evocative than film. And I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I, I do that. But um, what that proved to me was people are interested in in in, in spending. You see, they're committing a lot of time to reading the book. You know, if I'm doing a hundred thousand words, it's, gonna, it's, it's not something they can knock off in two hours. I found it interesting also because that book was read quite widely within football, and you know there's always a, there's always like a, a a launch pad for for the next book. So, for instance, on that one, I was in Ken's office, manager's office, and um, a guy called Jamie Johnson, who was the chief scout, came in and we're chatting away, and he said, um, "You should do a book about us scouts," and I thought. Oh, actually, that's not a bad idea. And as it happens, his dad, Mel, who was Tottenham's chief scout at the time, uh, has now got the same job at Queen's Park Rangers. He basically offered to be my mentor. So I went round with him, and that was the birth of the Nowhere Men. One thing I would say to anyone listening is, if you're trying to sell an idea... The title is absolutely key, yeah. absolutely key, because um, you can sell a book on a title. 
And a cover art, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, covers. Yeah, I've, I've been very lucky at Century, um, you know, because there's a horrible phrase that, you know, that, that is used in publishing that I, you know, I was a, what they call a brand author, which I hate the phrase. But essentially, they, they had a certain... The, the, a certain look about the, the covers because they, you know, they bought Family Gang, so they've done up five of my books, and they all look quite similar. Um, and there's some brilliant guys in in design. And, and actually, funny enough, although I'm a writer, I've got I had a, a year in TV as a kid um, doing what I called Cat Up a Tree News, which was like the local London stuff. Uh, I did a two man desk with Steve Ryder. But what I found in doing my documentaries as well is that the power of, you know, the visual power of that medium is fantastic. I create pictures in people's minds with my words. And it can be a subtle process. I can remember when we were doing No, no Hunger in Paradise, we were up in Manchester at Training Ground. And it was pouring with rain, which is un, unusual in Manchester. I was doing an interview with uh, a guy called Pete Lowe who was working in player welfare, was at Manchester City for a long time. And he was very emotional, talking about you know, the casualties and the, the bullying and everything else. And he was basically, he was on the verge of tears. And we did the interview, and then my cameraman, so I'm just going to pop out for a second, and it stopped raining, and I looked at him, I thought, what is he doing? And he walked out to Toronto the training pitch, and he was inside the goal net. And he was focusing on individual squares of the net. And because it had stopped raining, there were drips of water coming from them. A child's tears. And I thought, wow, that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. So, you know, words are my stock in trade, but I can see I can see the attraction of the other guys as well. That's just uh, like um Scorsese Raging Bull where the ropes and you've got the blood dripping on mm. and Scorsese is black and white and it's so evocative the blood dripping and you think he focuses on that at the end of one of the fights I'm not sure it is but it's, it's the same image it's the same image of uh, liquid yeah. meaning something tears yeah. or blood yeah. and that's yeah. so much of sport isn't it, it? Is. tears or blood it is and also as well. Well, and, and it actually was one of the images from you know, quite a turbulent stage in my journalism career where um, I was sent to South Africa in 94 to do the, the last England Rebel cricket tour under Mike Gatting. And we flew out with the team and arrived at you know, Joburg in, in the air, what was, it was then called Jan Smuts Airport. And huge demonstrations against the tour, the police essentially chased the demonstrators through the concourses and up in up a staircase where they were trapped at the top and they let the dogs loose on them we got there in the aftermath of it and there was blood it was a marble staircase the blood was running down the staircase and I used that as the image for the you know for my intro uh, which was the, the front page lead on the telegraph the next morning and then all hell let loose, you know. Basically, one of the one of the, the guy from the Guardian got kicked out of the country because boss of Secret Service had worked out that he 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 wasn't with on our plane. He was on a, two hours later, and he did the I saw bit, and they kicked him out for that. I had MPs trying to get me sacked. Um, uh, my editor at the time, uh, Bill Deeds, uh, basically said, "No, he's our man. We trust him. Do one." Um, 
so yeah that 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 image does have a bit of personal relevance as well and that was that i and that was that the beauty of doing that type of job was that i was meant to be going on to do a tyson fight in in tokyo it was when he lost to buster douglas and then on to the com games in auckland but they said look this thing's kicking off because it just kept going and i, I ended up staying there and covering mandela's release so it was. It was a. It, you know, the, the, you mentioning that it sort of does stimulate quite a few memories. Well, Mandela's release was the morning of the Buster Douglas fights twenty five years yeah, ago yeah. in February. So yeah, yeah. And but you asked. You, you talked about questions, yeah. and questions are at the heart of your books many times. But often troubling questions. This mm. quote about journalism, asking the, the questions that people don't want to uh, want to be asked, being at the heart of journalism. So so do you have? questions in your mind about your books and do you need them at the start in terms of the proposal and the pitch yeah. and the focus because you know it would seem that you've you've asked about managership in living on the volcano mm. and no hunger for paradise about the is it right that the journey that kids take to become yeah. uh, footballers state of play is a whole gamut of questions but those questions seem to be key so so do you have them at the start and do they change? I think they they evolve, but you have to have a strong core to your your idea. And you know the the process is um, you do what's called a, a treatment where I just put the rationale for the book and then an idea of how it would look. but you, it happens. You know, life happens. So you know, you'll, you'll be going, and this is one of the great attractions of a book. You know, you might be going down one particular path, and all of a sudden something happens, and you're going off at a tangent somewhere. Um, but again, the freedom of, the, of writing a book is that you've got you've got the chance to do that, and um, never be afraid to change your original idea. There has to be, you know, I, I and, and as I said, you know, when I when I I did the Scouts book which is a result of an idea by um, Jamie Johnson, the Millwall Chief Scout, come and do us. And, and so I went on. That then, you know, that book, The Nowhere Man, was you know, pretty successful, you know, won awards and all that. But the key for me was actually everyone in football read it, or a lot of people in football read it. So when I came up with my next idea, which was managers, because I'd seen managers under pressure throughout that process, uh, they allowed me in, and they gave they, they gave me they paid me the respect of being realistic, and um, again, that had a big impact on the profession itself in terms of you know without, I'm not bigging myself up hopefully here, but the LMA uh, showed that book to aspiring young managers. Uh, I go to training grounds now, and I, I went to see Danny Cowley for um, State of Play. And he had his old copy there and his dog ears and he underlined certain things because they're interested in, in one another. So I would have, you'd go to see a manager and he'd say, oh, I saw, you know, you saw, so, I hear you saw so-and-so last week. What's he do? And, uh, you know, that book, that book begins. And one of the key elements I tried to have is, you know, the first, it's, it's, it's an old journalistic maxim, you know, grab people in the first paragraph. So... Um, living on the volcano you know, begins with Martin Ling having electrodes put on his head for um, convulsive therapy 
uh, following his suicidal episodes. Um, and again, that was a, you know, they had a big impact because it gave people an, an insight into the pressures of the job. And, you know, it posed, you know, they posed their own questions. Well, why are you doing this? And it was interesting. I, I got a call after it had gone out uh, from a well-known manager who actually doesn't feature in the book. And he said, um, I, felt I, was, look, I felt I was reading my life story. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, when you, when you, are, when you, the other guys are articulating the pressure you feel and, and how obsessive you become, he said, I'll tell you, tell you my story. So he basically said, look, after games, I go into my study at home, get back, and I just put the DVDs on or, you know, watch it on my computer and obsess and analyze the game. And he said, I drink at least two bottles of red wine in doing that. And I'm sitting there and I'm brooding and I'm terrible to live with and I know I'm driving my family away and I'm driving my kids away, but I can't stop myself. And he, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not going to break any confidences, but he subsequently got divorced after about 20 odd years. And I thought, wow, you know, it is a killer profession, killer profession. And it's interesting because people come out with this sort of trite response, which we know is probably the nature of things in social media these days is, well, they get well paid, they get loads of money, they get compo when they get sacked. Yeah, but we're dealing with human beings here. And I suppose what I've always tried to do in all the books that I've done is emphasize the humanity of the individual. And uh, people often ask me, well, why do you use, why do you do sport? Why don't you do politics or whatever? And sport, I think, is almost unique in terms of you see the best in human nature. People striving for a goal, selflessness, commitment to a team. And you see the worst. You see the greed. You see the lie, the 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 the, the, the untruths, the you know, cynical manipulation of individuals. I, I did Gareth Ainsworth, and we were talking about releasing kids, and I'd seen that happen at Millwall. They used to do it at Millwall on first of April, which how ironic! What a date! You know, they would release their kids. Why It was just. Uh, you know the time where they had to decide on contracts now I know a, a lot of youth coaches now say that they have their worst moment now is in the week before Christmas because they've got to commit to boys so basically you're ruining ruining kids Christmases terrible thing to do because they all say and they all every manager I've ever met say it's the worst part of the job releasing someone um, because you know what goes into it and Gareth was saying about a kid and he, obviously it happened to him he, you know, when he got re- when he got released as a kid, he ran into the car park and hid beneath a car, or crouched down beside a car, and basically burst into tears. When he saw this this kid, he released him, and he said, "I could see him holding himself together." He said, "Was he acted with amazing dignity and restraint?" But he said, "I could see a single teardrop go down his go down his cheek." And I could see how much he was hang, uh, hanging it in, hanging it all in there. And he said, "I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't get that out of my mind." So again, you know, 
we lionize managers. We, you know, we, we treat them almost as caricatures. You know, they've always got cameras in their face and everything else. And everything they say or do is analyzed, overanalyzed probably. People don't understand don't, or, or are inclined to forget that they're human beings just doing a particular job. You know, their kids get bullied at school because their dad happens to do a certain job. What I hope I try to do is is give people pause for thought. Because it's very, very easy. You know, it, you're associated with Arsenal. I thought what happened to Arsene Wenger in the last year or so was awful. Because there is someone, I think a terrific human being, above all, erudite, intelligent, empathetic, treated like dirt. You know, something to be thrown away which I thought was terrible um, and again I think that's a product of one the impatience and the impurity of social media but also it was a, you know a complete ignorance of the fact that this is a game played by human beings cut them and they bleed criticise them and they wince you know let's get a bit of perspective on it I suppose I want to come to my, back to that a little bit later mm. just want a couple more on the on the book process itself yeah. um, there are a lot of lessons from your book that I do want to talk about but the process itself do you do all the interviews first and then write it uh, do, do you sometimes think oh no I need something more I've got, I've got to go back into the field and get something I try and write as I go along you know but, but you know, there is there is a research phase which is probably I, I try and use about three months something like that and get out there I have an idea in my head where I'm going to go and sometimes what I will do is I just go and hide away and be a hermit somewhere for a week or so and maybe write five chapters. Because also part of the the process is that you've also got to be cognizant of the pressure on your publisher. Because they're saying, right, okay, uh, we need this out. You know, there are two... It's in a calendar, isn't it? A set calendar. Yeah. There are two, there are two sort of you know, windows of opportunity. There is pre-Father's Day. That there's a big spike in sports books pre Father's Day, uh, or there is the sort of September October uh, publication, which is obviously for Christmas, which is you know, obviously a huge um, market. So you know, I what I what I will do is, and, and again, I suppose it's part of my inclusive nature is that I will send five chapters to the publisher. So one that. You know, they haven't got this empty space. They, they can see where it's going. But it is interesting because, you know, you're going a certain way and then you'll meet someone and you think, oh, wow, well, that's, that's something I need to think of. Well, let's go down there then. But that, that, that's part of the, the process. Never always allow yourself the get out. Always allow yourself the chance to do something that you never even thought don't say, well, okay, when I did my treatment, I said I was going to do bum, bang, 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 because, you know, sometimes that doesn't work and other opportunities come out. So, yeah, be open-minded, really. And do you have a, when you're a hermit, do you have a 2,000 words a day, 5,000 words a day? No, I just process? can't. Just, the, only thing just I do right. do, the only thing I do do is I, I've got a weird sleep pattern. I, I do this at home as well. Uh, I'll get up at, 3.30 in the morning right um, because you know you're in your study and it's dark outside and quiet 
and you're in this little womb basically and uh, so I write from about half oh, three till ten-ish, eleven, something like that when my brain is fresh and uh, I also, you know, if, if I wake up in the night and there's something there, I always get up because it's amazing. You think to yourself, oh, I'll remember that in the morning. No, you don't. You don't. So, you know, there might, and it might just be a phrase or, a, you know, a, a, an idea of, of a structure of a chapter or a sequence in the chapter. And I suppose, if, you know, there, it is, it's a strange process. It is a very, very solitary process writing. Uh, and then you have to um, broadcast, you know, so you, 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 know, you, you go from that private process into a very public process, which is selling the book. Well, I was going to say, how do you, because, yeah. because publishing houses are notorious for not, yeah. authors always say they don't sell the book enough. Exactly. We yeah. need to, you need to sell it yourself. Well, I've, I've, how do you do yeah. that? Well, I suppose, you know, the one thing about journalists, for all I'm, many faults is that we're pretty good self-publicists but also we know how the process works whereas so and 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 don't ever underestimate the power of mateship because you know i've i've been very lucky that people in my my game have been very complimentary about the books that i've done and funny enough i've had a few say to me god i wish i did what you did and they're guys who are you know household names football journalism and they I think oh I wish I did do that well become a brand author horrible well, phrase well a horrible <laughs> phrase no, but, but no, an author an author uh, no, yeah uh, but just just do that you know because mm-hmm. they because again their view was those those books were more revelatory they were uh, and I, I uh, uh, you know they, they gave they gave a greater insight into the game than what they could do in a newspaper or a magazine or wherever or a website um, because it had the scope to do, you know, you had the scope to do it. So, um, and there's some brilliant, brilliant journalists out there who could could quite easily have done what I've done. Um, I suppose if I'm lucky, I probably saw a, I saw saw newspapers beginning to wane in significance, probably a little bit earlier than some other people, maybe. Essentially, now the top sports journalists, and as I say, I think the quality is is, is fantastic. They're brands in their own right as well. You know, they're just beginning to discover that, I suppose. And it, so it's not like, well, see, when I began, sounded like Charles Dickens now, but, you know, you, you, go, you turn up to a game and uh, I, I was quite good at what, you, what we used to call ad-libbing, which is basically just pick up the phone to your copy taker at the other end in the office and start gabbling your match report. So I write it on the run, as it were. Um and you know we'd, we'd do some games in Eastern Europe, the old Eastern Bloc, and you know you'd be waiting for a phone call to come in. You know it's that sort of stuff. You know, you know dinosaurs roam the earth basically. But we were then you know we were football writers. Now you know the modern equivalents. You know, you know Henry Winter, Miguel Delaney, John Cross, Darren Lewis, etc. You know and, and I've. I've I hesitate to uh, to name names because I always forget a few. And, you know, there, but there are some brilliant guys out there. Now they are, they're all round experts. They're on TV, they're on radio, do video reports from matches as well as their own written 
you know, they are, you know, hugely, they're, multi, they're, they're multimedia masters now. And, and I think, again, I think probably their professionalism is, is underestimated by the reader. Um, they were some really good guys. Um, and you learn to do that. You know, we, 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 had to, we, we have to now in the modern world. You know, so, you know, you're speaking to me here at BT where I've done my BT Sport com, uh, podcast. Uh, I'm doing talk sport for three hours tonight. Uh, with Danny Kelly it's that type of exposure you wouldn't have had when I began or even 10 years 5-10 years ago so the, the nature of the game's changing but I think more and more you know, writers you know, I thought Crossy did a great book on Wenger uh, you know Henry Winter's done some really good stuff I'm really looking forward to Paul Hayward's book on the England football team which is going to come out in the autumn I think he'll do a fantastic job so yeah, it's, it is changing. It's changing. But are those books almost the anti-journalism that we're yeah. seeing at the yeah. moment? In the sense that, that while there are a lot of great guys at the top, guys and and, and girls, I'd yeah, say, sure. yeah, absolutely, um, at, at, at the top of the profession, um, there is still a lot of clickbait out there that yeah. is coming in all forms of journalism, including sports journalism. Yeah, and you know, when I was growing up. I read books by Brian Glanville because he was the only guy writing about football. Yeah. Now you've got a whole raft of important books, hopefully asking important questions that yeah. have the potential, hopefully, to change the game in a positive way. Mm. I mean, that that's the base of the questions you're asking, which is also an antidote for this, you know, you've got 100,000 words books against, you know, uh, 240 character tw- uh, tweets. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got this. They both believe that that's part of the journalistic canon of asking important questions, but surely 100,000 words is going to go deeper, more rounded um, uh, thought process, mm. and actually get to the nub of the issue. Yeah, and I think uh, it generates a, a degree of respect as well from yes. within, the, within the sport. It's got authority, isn't it? Yeah, uh, one hopes so anyway. Um, and I'm very proud of, of, of No Hunger because I've lost count of the number of parents who've, who've written thanking, for, thanking me for actually exploring the issues there. And guys within the game were saying, actually, yeah, yeah we were banked to rights in some of the stuff that we do. Um, now, I'm not saying it's going to change, change the world, but what it does do, it probably gives, it allows parents to make more informed decisions. It is a brutal process. You know, the commoditization of a child is... It's a terrible thing to witness, and you know there you, you see. You know, I used to go to quite a few academy games when I was doing the research for that, and you would see, you know, parents acting like potentates. You know, they they would be. I remember one game, uh, a tournament, where there's a doubt of a particularly promising kid, and he basically had agents coming in and having an audience with him every ten minutes during the game. So he had like six or seven guys come up to him. And they were obviously making their sales pitch to him. And I, I found that quite quite disturbing, to be honest. Um, and you do, you know, you hear of the, of the way, you know, the game has, you know, essentially exploited these kids, you know. Uh, it's interesting you say that because there's, um, do, you remember, do you remember the story of Sonny Pike? Yes, I know Sonny, yeah. yeah. I know him, yeah. Well, he's, he's writing a book now. I yeah. think I saw it on social, I know, yeah. social media, actually. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's writing a book now, and That's he was the first guy. of those. The sales I went to Ajax. I went to yeah, Ajax. Yeah. I think is it Enfield? I think he might be an Enfield boy yeah. around there. Yeah. Um, and um, 
yeah, he was one of the first ones that sort of. I went. To, I went was, to see him when I was doing it. Yeah, doing he had a huge buzz around. And did he turn pro anywhere? No, it, didn't, didn't make it. No. He, 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 he and blew that, up him before yeah. he got to that stage. Because also, you know, in in, in no hunger, I went to Brixton and see um, a fiwi, um, Stephen Scott, who runs that. You know, came out of prison basically with a uh, determination to better others. And in the process, better himself. And you know, he dispenses real tough love to a lot of kids. Uh, again, I suppose what that gave me was the opportunity to put football or sport in general into a much broader social context. So you go around the estates in Brixton, you see the, you know, you hear the, hear the gang culture, you hear of the gang culture. There are some tragedies out there, and you know you're there, and you see you know, Somalis turn, you know, turning up, or a, you know, or a gang member turning up with a machete, you know, to a training session. It's just like wow. Um, so again, you, you put sport into, the, I think, a much wider context. I think what, as a writer, sport gives you is access to people's minds. People are interested in sport because they like watching it, they like reading about it then you use that platform to give you a, a chance to really reach people and touch people. I think that's the key. In my period as a sports journalist, I'm sure yours as well, you, you must have seen the business of sport grow. Mm. Mm. It wasn't a thing <laughs> when 30, 40 years ago, I mean, I started in the early 90s, right? And it just wasn't a thing. You were a football club. Now they appear to be football corporations. Mm. Has that growth of the football business made the sport inhumane? You've talked about humanity. I, I think there's an element of that, certainly. Um, there is, but there is still all, there is still a basic humanity to it. Um, I'm just I'm just doing a, a series of um, films for BT Sport that we can use as a podcast with managers. So I've done last week. I did uh, Sean Dyche and I did Brendan Rogers, talking about the essence of their trade. And you know there is a thing now. You know, if you look at management, it's becoming much more empathetic. You know, Gareth Southgate probably embodies that. But they have to be very intelligent because, as Sean said, you know, at the highest level in the Premier League, the manager is dealing with chief executives of twenty-five different individual corporations i.e. his players they are multinational corporations in their own right individually so that requires a, a degree of dexterity and understanding of the real world that maybe a coach 20 years ago would never have to have I think you know money the root of all evil discuss well possibly it is um, I find the Americanization of our sports quite troubling at one level, it's quite trite and a bit transparent. The Premier League recently coming up with this idea of a Hall of Fame. Well, I'm sorry, you know, football didn't, didn't wasn't invested in, in, invented in 1992, and it's oh, well, it's going to be a fan vote. Well, that's going to just be social media willy waving. You know, that's just it's, you don't need it, um, but it's part of the Americanization of it. I think when you look at uh, if we, it, when we when we sort of go back and, and, and look at the development of modern football, year zero was probably the Glazers and Manchester United. 
where it is a you know they are a parasitic presence and there are other owners who are coming in some with with greater empathy so for instance liverpool's owners with their experience of running the red sox in the states um, i feel have got a greater grasp on the nature of their football club which is much you know intrinsically linked to a an outsider type community if you like i'm thinking about doing another book at the moment but where the zeitgeist of modern football is people are getting fed up with that they're fed up with the hyper commercialization they're fed up about being taken for granted okay the stadia are fantastic the football's great the product's terrific engaging but we're back we're back to this sort of plastic culture but also you've got absentee landlords now who are dictating that the football club as it was instituted is outdated and irrelevant and i think fans now are beginning to resent being taken for granted i can see you know but yeah you know, i hear it all the time uh, if they want to go and form super league let them go so let them go i like football clubs and, and it's an outdated i know i'm outdated i know a dinosaur in this but i like football clubs to actually represent their communities in a way that is really intimate and really long lasting a football club is not a mega store and japanese tourists god bless them walking around with bags full of replica gear a football club is the beating heart of a community it is the thing that unites an 8 year old granddad with a 8 year old kid it's meaning and identity absolutely I think we're losing that, and I think there is. I think there will be a backlash. Uh, you know, I, I, one of my favourite guys in football at the moment is Andy Holt, who's the absolutely um, uh, best Twitter feed in football. Oh, he's really good. He's feed. really good. He yeah. is really good. And you know, I, I did him for for State of Play, and I also in the film went up to to do John Coleman. You know, he said, "I'm not going to sack my manager. He's been here 20 years." And John made the point. He and his assistant probably know four or five hundred fans by their first names now that identification is fantastic i think we're in danger of losing that my pet theory anyone who's listened to a few podcasts will know my pet theory these days actually is clubs don't concentrate on meaning and identity and actually they concentrate a little bit too much on on-field success because if you look at Sunderland, who dropped down two divisions, mm. they will spend 95% of their money trying to be successful on the pitch, mm. what they earn. Yeah. They'll spend 95% of it, even if it's, some of it is to create money in order to invest more in the team to be more successful on the pitch. They've gone down two divisions. They've had a stinker of the last mm. four or five years. They haven't lost 100% of their fans. They've lost, I don't know, 30, 40% of their fans. Okay, mm. but you're still spending 95% of your money. So my, my point is that, that only one team wins the league, only one team wins the FA Cup, or one team can win even the even League One, League Two, and yet the majority of your supporters come back. Mm. So it's not purely the success, which is what the club is set mm. up for, supposedly, that is bringing those fans in. It must be meaning and identity, and we don't invest any time any real time and resource mm. into growing that I did a podcast with a team called Pauk yeah recently Greek club right yeah and yeah. the owner uh, t- tends to walk around a pitch with a gun doesn't he 
That I didn't know. Yeah. Well, that may feed into sort of a whole. But but he he turns he turns around. He, it, it was the, the the new media director there, and he's saying, "Well, we've grown our fan base for the last 30, 35 years. Each year, we can prove it, and we haven't won the league in that period of time." And I said, "Okay." And of course, social media hadn't existed for the last 10, 15 years. So, therefore, the reason you're growing your fan base isn't success isn't what you're doing in terms of your communication it's got to be the stories from granddads and dads yeah. to kids yeah. Right? yeah and that's meaning and identity and I would uh, uh, suggest Power could spend nothing on that mm. right directly um, but the importance of getting in that generation it'd be grandfathers and fathers I'm sure increasingly it'd be, be all uh, all, all, all parts of the family but that that, that familial passing down of narrative mm. is crucial and we invest no time in it at all there's a brilliant brilliant book uh, by a guy called Merv Payne who's a Millwall fan called Because My Dad Does and uh, that link between dads and lads is is the essence of is the DNA of football um, you know, shared. It's wider than just lads, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, and or, or, you know, mums and daughters, whatever. You know, because you know, uh, I do see an awful lot of you know, um, and it's probably an area we could talk about. But you know, I, I, there are some fantastic female journalists coming through. Uh, Katie White at Telegraph, Susie, Susie um, Rack at the Guardian, Molly Hudson, and I, I do a women's football podcast for BT as well. Uh, and they come on and they've got fantastic knowledge and they have passion for the game and that was stimulated by family experiences um, but to your broader point you know you're spot on um, if I take Millward as an example you know the part of, part of them would love to get promoted because they'd love to see them mass panic at Premier League headquarters when they get <laughs> when they go in the Premier League yeah um, I'm laughing it's not always a laughing matter but no, no. It's, it's only a tiny percent yeah um, but most of them don't want to go there don't, 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 don't want to get promoted they don't want to go to a plastic palace somewhere that, you know, every ground looks the same they want they, they 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 want something that has relevance to their memory and it doesn't mean it's old fashioned it means it's. I think it's the essence of football that it is something, as you say, where you, people identify with it. It's you know you go back to the ground that your dad went to and his dad went to, and okay, the the nature of the ground might have changed. So and, and well, if you take Woolworth as an example, the old den's not there anymore. It's a housing estate, like a lot of old grounds are, but um, the essence of the club's still there. And it, it is transmitted through individual experience. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I would recommend that book by by uh, by Merv. It was exceptionally good, and uh, you, you you don't need trophies. You know they're nice, like you know, Millwall had a fantastic ten years. You know, been at Wembley four or five times and everything. But it's it's they keep coming back, and this is why I like going to non-league football. There is a purity about that which I like. Well, it's got to be the meaning and identity that that keeps yeah. you going there because yeah. not getting the football because football's moderate. Yeah, and because as an entertainment hmm. package or an entertainment venue, yeah, it ain't much. No, I can, rem I can remember when I was doing uh, state of play. I did uh, I did a game 
the guy I knew who basically took over a football club, Erith Town, and he'd never done it before. His business, his carpets, he he does the red carpets for UEFA and stuff like that, you know. And uh, Mark Mark Devaney, his name is, and I went to see them one night and they were playing a team called Whiteleaf and the Whiteleaf Massive were there and there were about eight to ten of these guys behind one goal, beating it behind their goal, the goal they were attacking each half. And they'd obviously, few of them just come from the office because they got their suits on. And I just thought, that's fantastic. They go to every game, those guys. And there's only 10 or 12 of them, whatever it was. I thought, that's the essence of it. That's why, you know, I, I you know, I wondered about doing a, a non-league book. But a couple of guys, there's a guy called Nigel Tassel who'd done, who'd done one. But there is something about that I really like. I, I, I like low, I like, I love going to low, lower division football as well. Can you see a, a split coming? I mean, can we? I mean, we're talking about a European it, Super League. It's I here, mean, Rich. It's here. It's here. But even when people talk about the Premier League, yeah. Well, even then, there's a there's a top six. Exactly. And there's. I I, I think I, you know I'm of the I'm of the mentality. Okay, chaps, see you later. Hmm. Go. You know. You can do your global marketing strategies together. You know, disappear into your own little golden bubble. But 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 your fans still aspire to that. I mean, you talked about. I, I you see. I don't think they do in in terms of they, they're they, not they, voting with their feet. They're buying the merch. They're, yeah, the, the, the grounds are. are full. Yeah, yeah, even to the extent they're buying tickets and sometimes not turning up. Yeah. So if yeah. Fan, you talked about when we talk about meaning and identity, unless fans don't watch. Don't buy the kit. Yeah. Don't turn up. The, the I think, sort of I think football clubs I are think just we're, say, we're, we're, not, we're not too far from a tipping point, I think, where, uh, and it will be interesting what happens in, you know, we're, we're talking now with coronavirus and, and grounds being shut. Will people get out of the habit of going to a football match? They might do. I think because the game itself has got this institutionalised ignorance and arrogance that it doesn't doesn't look after the customer. Now I hate that phrase, but that's what they are in essence, a customer. Um, and I think more and more people, you know, I, I know from you know, obviously really small sample sizes, but you, you know, you hear a guy saying, oh, "I just can't be bothered to go to these games in, in the Premier League anymore. I'm going to go and watch my local non-league team." Point in my hand when I'm watching them and I'll go from end to end and it's great park outside and oh, that, yeah. turn, turn up at quarter to three and leave at ten to uh, five <laughs> ten, ten to five whatever it is yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so because it is when you think about it you know players themselves have, all, have grown away and, and I don't criticise them that it's just the nature of modern life but you know we've gone from rose tinted spec view of players Going, going to the games on the same bus as uh, you know as the fans now. Um, they've got you know, they've got people writing their own Twitter feed, you know, um, and they they're piling their Bentley into a coffee shop or something. You know. Just a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, firstly, is football anti-intellectual? Um, because state of play, I saw your documentary on that and. You're asking some important questions about how football can improve its its humanity, its processes, etc. And yet there is still a 
It's almost a debate between art and science, isn't it? To a certain yeah, extent. yeah, it's, yeah. It's the it's question so, I often, often ask. Certainly with Scouts and, and, and the Nowhere Men, you know, you've got the Billy Bean money ball. I mm. remember the scene where they're all sitting around and that's almost, that is the almost the battle between art and science. Yeah. And there's certain people yeah. who think football is only known by football people and anyone from the outside doesn't know anything and they wrap their arms around it and you can't get in on the, and then you've increasingly got the science side, the data analysis, etc., etc. Which is chipping away at that. There's, there's actually an internal battle. It's not, but not. Yeah, I think it's a hybrid. Uh, well, I, I use a, an example from my own family. You know, my son's a scout. He and he, he probably embodies the young scout coming through at the moment. Where you know, his background was good footballer, uh, but he got 16. It was at, he was at Northampton's academy. Got to 16 and realised he wasn't really quite good enough to be a pro. Uh, to his coaching badges he had a fantastic eye for a player even when he was I, I watched football with him 12, 13 years old he could see things I could never see uh, did some part time scouting when he was at uni did uh, sports coaching science there so he's got the technological element to his CV but he's also got what I call coach's eye the scout's eye you can just see something you know you and you feel the game in your bones like the old boys do so i think the the modern uh scout um he aaron was at uh, norwich you know he was pretty much responsible for point i was when i was doing state play I, I had a couple of days given the run of barcelona so so oh, oh by the way you know there's this this player that you know i'd be pushing uh, and he was playing there for cultural Leonesa and uh, against the Barcelona Barca B. So he said, I'm going to have a look. And he said, oh, I thought, well, this kid is, he, he was the best player at the pitch by a mile. They, 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 but they also did the, the stats. Uh, so it was the eye and the, what I call the pie, the pie chart. Um, signing for 1.3. He's now probably worth 40 million quid, 50 million quid probably. And he's now just gone on to. Um, help restructure Middlesbrough's uh, recruitment uh, just before Christmas he got that gig and uh, was headhunted so guys like him have got both sides of the, of the coin they've got the technical knowledge and the ability to scout through video and through analysis but they've also got that that thing in the heart and then the well, the soul where they see a player, they can just see a player, and it's it's a really intuitive process, really interesting. Um, so and and yeah, Aaron's one of a group of young kids coming through into the game now, uh, who will, I think, have a big impact eventually. And because it's, you look around the world, you look at baseball in the states, someone like the New York Yankees will have. Or we'll say that the Chicago Cubs is a good example. They have their geek room, which is basically just a bit like Liverpool now. I've got their research department where they've got astrophysicists, guys from CERN in you know Geneva, Higgs boson, and all that. They never watch a game. They they perceive football through numbers. The the best clubs now are working out through this hybrid process, old school and new school working together and sometimes you know and, and may, mainly now almost embodied by one individual who's got both skill sets 
So I think I think it's an interesting process. But the football, football and any sport will always have an underlying humanity. And this is where, you know, we've talked about in my own books, but I put just as much into my co-writes because I hate the word ghostwriting. I just think that's demeaning, frankly. I'm quite a visible ghost when I do my stuff. Uh, and I put just in a, I, I put more into it almost than, than my normal. So it's a different experience. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because you have to become you. Ha- you have to get inside someone's head. You have to you have to think like that. You have to hear what they hear. You have to say things in the way they say it. And I suppose you really. I suppose the most extreme example of that process was when I did um, Gareth Thomas, and. I have what I have what I call my speed dating session with with them, my subject. We have a couple of hours and we just see if we get on as with people more than anything else. And with Gareth, at the end of that, you know, we got on really well and I said, Look, mate, this is not a decision you can take in two hours. You need to think about this for not just two weeks, maybe a couple of months. Because I guarantee you that if we do this properly, and I'm gonna do it properly, this will be a very painful experience for you. It will be deeply personal, and you'll take you, I'll take you to places that you don't really want to go. So it's down to you, because I'm not going to do the anodyne, PR puffy type of. No, those voices have died away. They have massively, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he came back after a couple of weeks and said, "Yeah, we'll do it." And he was as good as his word. He, you know, he got fantastic moral courage, um, and that process was really quite deeply intimate in terms of. You know, I, I, I suppose for want of a better phrase, I, I, it was almost like for me method writing. You know, we had Brando method acting. But so, for instance, you know, I made a point of we, we did quite a bit of work around his mum and dad's house and an estate, council estate in a place called Sarn, which is just outside Bridgend. And I made a point of actually sleeping in the single bed that he had as a kid in his bedroom back bedroom sorry front bedroom because I wanted to there was a there was a, a lamp standard outside and it shone through the bedroom window and so I could see the shadows in the room and get a sense of what it was like to be on there on your own and uh, Gareth used to because he was struggling with his sexuality at about 13 he would bury his face in the pillow and cry because he didn't want his mum and dad next door to here so I got that and we had one day in particular which was full on it was really full on where we spent the morning in a graveyard graveyard of his local village church where you know he used to come go down there his, his wife had four miscarriages and it's funny you know do you have like a, the key question my key question to Gareth was going to be if you'd have had a child would you come out and I thought, well, you know, I need to know him really well to ask him that question because, you know, that's the biggie. And as it turned out, I did it in about three hours uh, because I just felt that it was right. And he said, no, I wouldn't have come out. You know, I would have kept everything under, under wraps and I'd been the, the father, you know, dutiful father. But he used to go down to this church late at night de- trying to deal with, he was married, trying to deal with the, the, the almost like the schizophrenia of his life and he would be screaming at the walls literally 
at the church. We went into a church, and we went into the church. Sat, it was raining when we sat outside, we sat on this bench. And you had all these sort of ladies coming through and they're looking at us. And he's, he's crying and I'm sort of welling up and it's in the rain. And he was saying to me, I used to want to be in that grave, that grave in particular. And it, he then came out with the name of the guy in the grave. And yeah, so that was pretty full on. And then we went down, the, I drove down the coast to, um, there was a promontory overlooking the Bristol Channel. So we had to walk, we, we parked up in a farmyard and we walked for about a mile and a half over these sort of freshly ploughed fields. And this is where he's going to jump to his death. And uh, it was around the corner and uh, so you couldn't, you, you couldn't be seen anyone who was taking a walk down the clifftops you couldn't really see him so we were just going to recreate that moment and um, there was the, the prevailing onshore breeze so it cut almost like this little ridge um, you know, quite close to the edge he said well that's where I'll lay down for about 20 minutes before I was going to jump and I took all my clothes off apart my pants so I said right okay we're going to lie down We'll keep our gear on if, if that's all right with you. <laughs> um, and went through the process I want, of get being in his mind, right? What you're watching, what you're seeing, what you, you know, what, what's going, you know, where the memories, blah blah. And I said, "Well, where are you going to jump from?" He said, "Well, just down the road, just just down, down there, it's about five five six meters away." And there was a a rock about a meter square, something like that. And impulsively, I said, right, let's go and stand on it. And I'm a toe guy. And so we're standing on this. And obviously, he's going through it. I'm saying, right, okay, you're on here now. Did you get here? Yep. Why didn't you jump? I don't know. And it's about 250-foot drop. Um, and he, uh, it's, it was a really weird process because, again, there was this onshore breeze. So at the end of it, my tape was just full of wind noise. Yet, both of us, independently, had absolute recall of what he said to one another. Absolute recall. And when he came off, uh, you know, I'm not into selfies and stuff like that, but he said, let's do a picture. So he actually got my phone, because I'm bloody useless at technology, and he took a photograph of us, just by the by that rock. And he said, yeah, I'll never come back here again. That's closure for me. We went back to his mum and dad's house, and he, his dad has this sort of like le- lazy recliner sort of leather thing in front of the TV. And I saw Gareth, and I, and I thought, God, I've probably pushed him too far here because he, he his face was, his skin looked sort of like grey and parchment thin. I thought, well, wow, I've done, I've, and I, I, his partner, I spoke to his partner the next morning, Ian. Or the partner at the time, and uh, I said, "What was he like?" He said, oh, "He said he didn't sleep, didn't sleep." And so I said to Gareth, "You yeah, okay, mate?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, yes." And needed to do it, and then, and that was when you experience that with someone, it is completely all the barriers are down, you know. And he then, a couple of days later, we were, you know, we were both quite big blokes, and we were, we were lying on the floor in his mum's living room. And uh, he started crying. He, he he passed me his phone, and it was a um, it was a song that his 
ex-wife had sent him to explain her feelings about even being married to a guy who ultimately came out as gay and gay and he's in tears so I'm in tears <laughs> so it's a ridiculous scene and his mum folks her head around the door and said I looked I said a couple of tea boys you know <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah and, uh, and I suppose the satisfaction of that Rich is that you get to know someone so well one of the most satisfying things ever uh, I didn't tell him didn't tell Gareth but the final chapter of that book was a, a letter written by him as a 40 year old man to him as a 13, 14 year old kid and I didn't tell him I was writing it and I got I knew him so well and you know the whole sleeping in the bed bit and all that and I, t- I showed him it and we were on the patio and he read it and he just disintegrated he, he just grabbed me in his arms and he just he was sobbing like sobbing really profoundly for about five minutes I thought and it was funny I shouldn't have done it but I thought it was a yes got him I got him I got him and it was weird because that process was you know I don't want to overestimate power of a book but when we were doing it and it, because it was so powerful I said mate you know, we could save people's lives here if, if this goes right and I know it sounds daft and a bit presumptuous sitting here now but we went on a speaking tour for that and we were promoting that book and we there were people who told us that it saved their lives. And that was my last question. How do you judge a book success? I mean, that one's... That is, yeah. That's a biggie, isn't it? That's kind it of is. answering that question. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we were doing a... We do, there, were, there were a couple... Uh, on that, we did a gig in a church in Bath about 700 people and it was just a Q&A that, that we did and there was a, a lady in the front row with a, with a Welsh an old style Welsh rugby union shirt on and she you know her, she was basically laser laser eyes at Gareth all the time I thought oh, that's interesting so in, anyway at the end of all this what you do is you know you sign the book so we both we both sign it again and um, because that was a, a joint thing we said it was our book you know, so that I wasn't just this sort of invisible ghost. So this lady, <coughs> excuse me, gets gets she's about halfway down the queue and you know, the queuing out of the out of the block almost, and she gets to the gets to us and suddenly just disintegrates. So Gareth takes her up, and so and and he's looking over her shoulder at me, sort of gesturing, "Come on, get in here." So I get in, and I'm, I'm hugging her as well. And basically, the story was that um, she was uh, trans- transgender, and her, she said she explained that, that her mum had just died, and her mum, her great ambition for her as a as a young boy was to play for Wales, play, play rugby for Wales. And she said, "You know, I felt I've let my mum down by not being able to do that." And so. And you know, she then went into the sort of mental health issues that came from that. But she said that reading the book had a profound effect on her. And I thought, wow, that is just because it's when you when you have a fellow human being in your arms, literally vibrating, sobbing, and you think, wow, you know, we've done something there. We've touched her at such a deep level that 
yeah that is contact I suppose pure human contact I thought that was that was a wonderful experience and I, I hope I don't come across as being exploitative in any way but it, but it was just like yeah okay that's the power of a book you can actually I mean, there was another guy who, who basically said to Gareth same sort of scenario in another another gig we did um, what did you think of when you were on that rock and he said well actually I, I envisaged my mum and dad around my grave crying and uh, he said I went to Western Supermare and I had an image of my kids and bang gone he actually left the book and, and I went after him and gave him the book and I said to Gareth afterwards he hasn't told anyone that so he, he was there that was a suicidal sort of episode that he dealt with by himself he hadn't told anyone again so because he'd read the book he felt emboldened enough to actually share that experience and I thought I was just like wow yeah, there were loads of ones like that and equally like you know so when I did Joe uh, I, I always say to them uh, you know, I, I turned down quite a few but I want them to contribute and understand the potential of a book so with Joe Barton one of my pre preconditions was that we went to prison together because I wanted him to get an appreciation of where he'd been where he could go again and then you'd go back and do the estate and again I lived with, you know we, we, we spent a lot of time a lot of time with his nan on the estate just to get an idea of where he came from and who he was and why he was and he's not perfect still isn't but he, um, I've, I've got the utmost respect in him for him because he basically owned himself up in a way that um, very few people do. And again, that book was pretty successful because not not just because of my writing, far from it. It was because someone, you know, in sport, which is a pretty sanitised, superficial biz business. I actually had the courage the moral courage to open up and say look this is who I am judge me it's nice it's good. To, to actually help someone do that is brilliant on that story of the power of the book Michael Calvin thank you very much that's a pleasure pleasure you can find sports content strategy on Facebook Twitter and Instagram Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Mr.